Welcome to Loving What You Do, the Merns and Pipe podcast. We've broken our podcast down into a series of different themes, and our first theme is all around storytelling. We're going to speak to partners, creatives, and people that we admire who all are good at storytelling in some shape or form. In the second episode in our series on storytelling, I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Jubber. Nick is a writer and he's just published a book called The Fairy Tellers that he's going to tell you all about. Nick, welcome to the Loving What You Do podcast with Mens and Pike. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for having me, John. Tell us how, how you know us, because it's not me that you uh, you know particularly well, but, but Kirsty. Oh, well, I was at university with Kirsty, so we've known each other for many, many years, more years than I uh, can almost... Uh, calculate uh, since the previous century and uh, and what do you do for a living so i'm a writer i do uh, various kinds of, of of writing i've done a bit of teaching as well and other things uh, in my in my life because writing isn't always the easiest uh, career to make a, a living out of but uh, my main work is is writing books that are about history and travel and a lot of mythology and storytelling and all sorts of different ingredients that I try to pack into to these books. They're, they're sort of marketed as non-fiction. So they're, they're books that are looking into history, but looking often at the sort of fictional worlds that are, and the people behind them or about the stories behind them in some way. And, and you have a new book out in a minute to tell us a bit about that. What's it about? What is it called? Yeah, it's called The Fairy Tellers and it's about seven storytellers in history who who did really amazing things to create the the stories the fairy tales that that have gone down as some of the most beloved and some of the ones that we we tell to our children that get turned into movies but often the people who are behind them are are their their names are forgotten because we often think of the stories as being so universal that we we don't really look into how these stories have been shaped or defined by very particular people so i've looked at these this these seven different characters and it's nice sort of magic sort of fairy tale number seven and try to sort of weave together a, a history of the fairy tale through them and they they range from there's a, a Neapolitan soldier of fortune who was the first person to set down stories like Cinderella and 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 Rapunzel in European literature to um, Hans Christian Andersen, um, whose whose name I think most people would recognise. The others are all figures who who probably are not so well known, even though they did amazing things. Like one of them uh, is the woman who wrote Beauty and the Beast, and that's a story that's seen as so universal that we forget that it was really written down very particularly by a, by a particular author in 1740 in France, Gabrielle Susan de Villeneuve, and um, her story hasn't has has you know hasn't really been told in English very much. So um so it's a, an amazing opportunity to really sort of to shine this spotlight on these people and sort of pay tribute to them. That's brilliant. So of these seven, is there, I mean, what drives these people to become storytellers? Have you found anything in their history and in their background that makes you go, that was the thing that that, that inspired them to want to create these stories? I don't know yes. if that's a... You know. Yeah, it's a good question. They they all had different different angles, different motivations. They were all coming from slightly different situations. So the first of them, Gian Battista Basile, for example, he was very much a sort of natural born storyteller. He was a great raconteur. His contemporaries said how lively he was at gatherings. He belonged to a lot of the academies that were growing in Italy at the time in the 17th century. But he found it really hard to, to get a patron. And so he went around different city states. Um, and obviously, Italy at that time was lots of different city states. He went to Venice to find a patron, then got himself involved in the, the war that Venice was fighting against the 
Ottoman Turks in Crete. He didn't like that very much. He said that you, you know, being a military gentleman means you're likely to be crippled or end up even worse with a pension plan in the hospital. So he came back to Naples and found out that his sister was a, a great prima donna. She'd become a great singer and Monte Verdi, the great composer, was composing music for her. And so he hung to her coattails for a while, but he didn't last there very long. So then he went to Zingoli, Avellino, various different places until he ended up in a little place called Gugliano as a governor there and then died when Matt Vesuvius erupted and the shower spray infected his lungs. So it was in a way quite a bitter life really. But he collected all these stories as he went along. And I think because he was such a raconteur, he just loved, he loved telling stories and he loved listening to stories. And so he'd work as a sort of provincial administrator in a lot of places and, and gather the stories that people told him as they came to make their petitions. And these were very much stories from the folk, from the ordinary people. And, and, and he collected them together and made what was Europe's first integral collection of fairy tales which is called the tale of tales so so that is one example and another example is gabriel susan de villeneuve who wrote beauty and the beast she started out her life as an aristocrat looking like she was going to have a very comfortable life then she married at the age of 20 to another aristocrat all looking perfect but he was a rake who 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 got involved in a lot of gambling had lots of mistresses drank too much and then died and left her with his debts and then her mother sued her for her father's fortune obviously not a very close family so she ended up with nothing so she had to come to paris and she got herself work as a housekeeper to a to a playwright called uh, Prosper Julio de Crebillon, who was a great playwright at the time, a rival of Voltaire, but was in the dumps at the time because he'd had a string of failures. And he lived with more than 30 stray cats and dogs and lots of houseplants and smoked so much that he was known as Le Fumeur, the, the smoker, because he was always smoking his pipe. So it's quite a strange household she came into. And she basically looked after his house. And Casanova was one of the people who visited and said that she was really, you know, the person running the household there and looking after, even looking after his his work and his, 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 his literary affairs. And while she was there, she wrote stories and I think she was she was clearly an imaginative person who wanted to 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 to, to write wanted to tell stories but she wasn't able to get a license because it was very difficult for women to get licenses for their work and fantasy was often uh, fairy tales were often frowned upon and seen as somehow sort of radical and anti-establishment and so um, she had to produce those books in an illicit edition which is one of the reasons why her name hasn't really been remembered why people sort of don't really know who she is because she had she couldn't put her name to it, it had to be sort of her name in asterisks but there was this urge to write that she had and I think and to tell stories and that obviously is the thing really that that that, that unites all these people that they they have this 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 passion for stories and this desire to to communicate stories and and in this particular genre stories that have these elements of magic about them and so you, you mentioned a sort of I suppose the stories of ordinary people I mean is that is that what's important about fairy tales is it the fact that there's a there's a sense of ordinary as well as a sense of the magical so that you know people yeah. are transported in that way and do you think you know when when we tell stories today there needs to be a sense of ordinary as well as well as amazement and wow and you know surprise yeah. Well, one of the things that defines fairy tales, I think, is this idea that they're stories that come from the people. So the Brothers Grimm, who who were sort of the great, some of the great story collectors, and uh, the the two brothers Wilhelm and Jacob, they they obviously did an amazing job in in collecting stories in Germany and and many of the most iconic fairy tales. And they very much saw themselves as collecting stories from the folk. Now, as it actually happens, the reality is that the stories they collected were mostly from the young women who lived as their neighbours. Um, and one of them, who's a focus of, of one of the sections in the book, Dorchen Wild, who told them stories like Rumpelstiltskin and the Six Swans and probably Hansel and Gretel and, and many others, was uh, the daughter of an apothecary who lived across the street from them. And they collected the stories that these girls told them. And they had a sort of, a sort of gathering in their house where 
different people would come along and they would tell them stories and then they would write them down and then eventually produce their collection. But they saw them very much as stories that were coming from the folk because they were the stories that these girls had heard from their nurses or the, the housekeepers or the people who lived in their homes. And they were very much seen to be stories that were coming from the villagers. And another of the people that I've written about, uh, the Russian storyteller, Ivan Khodjikov, he went around and he did what we think of the Grimm's doing, but they didn't really do it. But he actually did. He went around the villages and he listened to the people and, and collect and wrote down the stories that they told him. And so there is this very strong sense that these are the, the, their folk culture, they're, they're the stories, the magical tales that people told. Uh, around the hearth and it goes back to that sort of the roots of storytelling this idea that you would gather in the evening you've done your your day's labor in the fields or whatever it is and then you gather around together in a warm place and somebody tells a story and with fairy tales it's usually it's going to be a story with some kind of element of magic now there are other sto stories and sometimes in fairy tale collections you'll have stories which don't have any magic in them at all because there's those sort of folk tales that have got added into that collection even in something late something in, in the late part of that tradition like Hans Christian Andersen you, you get some of the stories that don't really have any magic in them but usually they do have some magical element in them and usually they're stories that you can tell to children and they're going to enjoy them and but I think probably most importantly they're stories that are told from the mouth orally so there's this idea that that, that the storyteller suddenly sparks up and tells the story and everybody's riveted to it. And it's not a story that is sort of confined to a text. It, it, it's, it can be retold and it can be changed and it can, different details can be added into it and you can shape it to your audience. And a fairy tale in its, in its real pure form, I think, is very much something that, that it's not defined by, say, by the pictures or, or, or by the layout of the text. So that's where it differs from children's literature. So it, it's why something like, you know, some of those later, later stories like Alice in Wonderland or even The Wind in the Willows, they became very much bound to those particular books and texts and the, and the particular illustrations. And even though new people would illustrate them differently, still the text and the storyline became very much fixed. Whereas in fairy tales, they, they have that agility, which is why they travel. It's why they're able to move around all around the world because they can keep shaping themselves to whatever milieu, whatever location they find themselves in and whatever their audience needs from them. Do you think there's some sort of sim similarities to maybe now the popularity of sort of podcasts and 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 that sort of medium in communication in that in that people are, are telling their stories, they're telling their anecdotes, but it's you're listening to them. It's not like you have to watch them on TV or I mean, obviously, you know, lots of dramas are really popular on TV and there'll be many series and beautifully shot and multi-million, billion dollar sort of things. But but also people like listening to people telling stories on podcasts as well, don't they? Yeah. I think there's something really magical about just listening and without all the sort of the, the, the bells and whistles and all the frills, just listening to a story. And I think you're right. I think that is something that, that gives this sort of new sort of uh, fab for podcasts such, a, um, such an energy, you know, this idea that you can, you just listen to somebody telling their story and anybody can tell that story, you know, that podcasting is something that pretty much anybody can do. So, so that's uh, that, yeah, it's not sort of, I think, one of the problems with fairy tales is that it's this very it's this very ordinary form that was that everybody could share everybody could enjoy but then obviously it got taken on by mass media and so you have the sort of these amazing and brilliant you know versions that have been done by by movie makers by disney especially but obviously that sort of takes it away from the original idea which is of this something very simple of somebody just sitting around telling a story and i've been to a lot of situations of of people doing doing oral storytelling storytellers in britain and in many other countries and um, there's a lovely place uh, near where i live called the earth house where a group called the crick crack club do for do storytelling and to sit there 
is always pretty packed and, and the storyteller, they're really, really craft, you know, they've got a lot of craft. They're very talented storytellers who, who tell the stories and everybody's just completely bewitched. And there is something very, um, very, it feels like you're you're almost going back in time in in the very best way that you're sort of communing with the ancestors you know that it's not just us there listening to them but somehow every single generation who've ever listened to this tale and you're sort of connected across this huge spectrum of time and space and i think there's something really exciting about that which for me is it you know, absolutely eclipses the excitement of say being in a movie theater although even then you have i think some you're still getting some of that thrill i think there's always a thrill of being in a space with other people enjoying a story of some kind. So I think it, it sort of connects all kinds of storytelling. Given that you've looked at fairy tales from all sorts of like different continents, different countries, obviously the seven authors who have very different backgrounds, even different eras of, of history and things like that. Is there any, what are the common ingredients that go into a fairy tale or a good sort of folk story? What, you know, what does a fairy tale have to have, even though it transcends different eras and different countries? Mm, well, it's, it's got to have, I think it's got to have a, a sense of drama about it. Um, obviously, it's going to have some kind of, it's probably going to have some element of the magical in it. So it's going to have this sort of magical image in it. I think a lot of the fairy tales that, that really endure, they have something that makes them very striking. So you have, say, the, the gingerbread house in Hansel and Gretel makes that story really single out. Or you have something like the wolf eating the granny in, in Little Red Riding Hood, you know, that makes that a very memorable children, a memorable story for children. But it's got to have something. But I think also it's got to have this sense of drama that it goes from extremes that the, that the, the hero, usually the heroine or, or the hero, but, you know, depending on who, who the main character is, that they go from the absolute bottom. You know, they're really things are not going well for them to to the top. And so, you know, the classic obviously is Cinderella. She's she's having to do all the sweeping for her stepsister. She's being treated very badly. And then she ends up marrying Prince Charming. So she she goes from, from the very bottom rung of the ladder right to the top. And uh, if in Hansel and Gretel, the, the, the brother and sister, you know, they're in the worst possible situation. They've been thrown out by their own parents into the woods. I mean, it's total child abuse. And, um, and they're left in the wood all on their own. They can't find their way back because the birds have eaten the trail of, um, of seeds and bread and breadcrumbs and things. So, they're, so, so things are not looking good. And then they see... And I think this is where that story is, 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 is very good, but also a typical example of a fairy tale, actually, is that you have several, several twists in the tale. So they see a house of, in original, it's a house of bread and cakes, and then it's become known as the house of the gingerbread house. And so then it, things are looking up again. They get to eat sweets, and it's a very much a child's idea of things looking up, you know, because to an adult, it's like, well, just because there are some sweets in the forest, that doesn't mean you're out of the woods yet, you know, <laughs> no pun intended. So, um, so then it all goes wrong again, because although it's a house of sweets, and that sounds really nice, then it turns out there's a witch in the house, and she wants to eat them and then suddenly um hansel is trapped in a cage and gretel is having to do all the sweeping and is told to get the, the oven ready so things are really looking really bad and it's reached this sort of pitch at this moment well, this is the sort of moment where in a movie you know it's the moment of the, the moment of absolute crisis you know what's going to happen here and then gretel comes up with the the sort of the final twist where she pushes the, uh, the witch into the oven saves her brother and then in in the original story and it depends on whether this is used in other versions but in the original story they get there's loads of treasure in the house and they take that all back with them to the to their house where they find their father who is very happy to see them and in a very kind child way, childlike way, they forgive their father for the fact that he abandoned them in the forest and the, the stepmother is, is no longer there. Um, so it's all happily ever after. 
but you have sort of more than one twist in the tale. And I think that's uh, that's an important ingredient for any story. And I think it's something that's very much there in fairy tales. We often think of fairy tales being quite simple, but actually when you go into the structure of a lot of stories, they are they do have a sort of beautiful simplicity and a kind of elegant simplicity to them, I think. But they also, they are, the best fairy tales, I think, are very good at sort of at at surprising you, at, at, at taking you along where you think you're going along one direction, then there's suddenly a twist, and then there's always another twist in the tale before the end. And that's part of, I think, what makes them so exciting. Well, I mean, we often, I suppose our, our storytelling comes down to sort of telling the stories of, of patients and the journeys they've been on. But I think often theirs is not a simple or linear journey from so even from a you know a diagnosis to a treatment to hopefully becoming better and things like that there are twists and and, and tales all along and I, I think you know I suppose that's the same for anybody in any life like it's never simple and maybe that's the the appeal of losing yourself in a fairy tale is what's going to happen next because none of us know no and there's that hope and i think fairy tales very much give that hope that you'll be lost in the woods you'll be you'll be like aladdin you'll be stuck in a cave with with no hope at all and all but all the only thing you've got with you is a rusty old lamp and how how on earth are you going to get out of this situation you rub the lamp and then suddenly a magical genie appears and the next thing you know you're the richest person in in the whole city but there's that hope that we all have. That's why people buy lottery tickets. You know that, that your your life will be changed in a, in an instant, and and everything will be great after that. Mind you, um, we tend to think of of fairy tales as all ending happily ever after. I mean, one of the things I found fascinating about reading the sort of hundreds of, of fairy tales that I've read over the last years is that many of them do not end happily ever after. And, you know, especially if you go to some of the stories by Hans Christian Andersen, they end up quite sadly. I mean, in his version of The Little Mermaid, for example, she dies um, and is sort of transported to heaven, but uh, she doesn't get the prince. So there's um, so there's often these very sad endings. So, so I think a lot of fairy tales are much more hinged to a sense of reality and often the bleakness of reality that the original storytellers really knew in, in the times when they were telling these stories. Then, then we give them credit for, and it's often because of, like any genre, it's been curated by, uh, by you know, by a very, very conventional forces really to to bring out the sort of the the stories that represent society's conventional attitudes and 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 values in many ways. But but behind that, there's a whole body of stories that that break all the rules that we think of as being the rules of fairy tales, mm. and um, and are often much more interesting. Does every fairy tale have a lesson, like a moral or a lesson or a heeding a warning or something like that i mean mm. most I of them every, seem to have some every, sort of element like yeah that. i think every good story is going to have meaning of some kind but it's not necessarily immoral a lot of stories would be told originally in the sort of folk forms that 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 that, that we know from say the 16th and 17th century and then we find them later on having morals attached to them later, especially in the 19th century when society in Europe became very moralistic and very obsessed with moralizing. Um, I mean, an example, and I think it's an example of a really interesting, a much more interesting story than it's given credit for actually is Beauty and the Beast, which was originally told in the 18th century by Gabriel Susan de Villeneuve. And in her version, there's no mention of God at all, which was, uh, which was seen as, is, you know, has been seen as something quite scandalous, but it was later retold, abbreviated, and a lot more moral, morals and religious morals added to it by another writer, Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont, whose version then became much more popular. And, um, and, and then was translated into English and was very, very popular amongst Victorian society. But that story is really interesting, I think, because people get it, are often quite baffled by it. Um, it's even been accused of, um, quite understandably, of being an example of Stockholm Syndrome, um, you know, the captive who falls in love with her captor. But the actual narrative is 
um, and there's a lot of twists in the narrative because it starts off as being from the merchant's point of view. The merchant's lost his fortune. He goes off to try and find his fortune. On the way, on the way back home, he he gets lost in a wood, so he finds his way into an enchanted house. And then he thinks, oh wow, at last I'm going to have a new fortune. Or oh, I'll take this rose back to my daughter when I go to tell them, hey, we've got a new place to live. Then suddenly he's accosted by a beast, and then everything goes wrong and so then he has to swap his place with his daughter Belle and then it's then it's Belle's story and then things are not looking good for her because she's living in a house with a beast and she thinks he's going to eat her mind you he's got an amazing house and there's lots of really beautiful magical things there a magic mirror that she gets to watch all the latest plays from Paris in there are dancing monkeys and parrots and all kinds of things and there's books as well and um one of the I think lovely details in the original 18th century version is that it very much emphasizes the fact that Belle enjoys reading but um what happens during the course of the story is that she goes from being the beast's captive to, to reversing the situation where he is effectively her captive. And at the end of the story, the, beast's, the beast is dying because he's in love with her. And it's up to Belle to choose whether she gives him mercy and, and whether she saves his life and, and, and stops him from dying. So he's completely at her mercy. And I think this is one of the reasons why this story has, has been so popular because it manages to switch around this, this dynamic. And, um, and I think that's another sort of an element of narrative, I guess, is where you have, you know, you change the characters, you change the dynamic between them. Like one character seems to have the upper hand and then another, and then it switches around. And that often happens in fairy tales. So, um, so I think it's what makes that story so interesting. And obviously Belle then chooses to save the beast, but it's very much in the original version. She's very much making a conscious decision. Um, and so whilst I wouldn't say that it's exactly a feminist text, um, and, you know, I think it's a very problematic text for a lot of people, it is, it is in many ways a more interesting story story than, than than people sometimes give it credit for yeah yeah that, that deeper and those twists and turns like really pull you yeah. in and make yeah. it much complex yeah. so and there are all these hidden depths to a lot of these stories I mean this is why Freud and Jung and all these psychoanalysts really have found these stories very interesting and although I think we could certainly question some of the conclusions that they've drawn from some of these stories I think the point is that the stories inspire thought and 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 reflection and, and that's because these stories have gone through so many generations of retellings and so many people have added elements to them. And so there are all these layers and depths to them. And because they're stories that speak to us on a really profound level, they're very often very universal. They're stories that can be retold in different shapes and forms, in different cultures, different languages, different countries, different, you know, all sorts of different backgrounds. I mean, to give an example, there's an Indian story. Uh, called The Golden City um, and one of the collections I've written about is called The Ocean of the Streams of, of Stories and it's from 11th century Kashmir and uh, it's one of those collections that's hugely influential but hasn't been written about very much in in, in, in sort of in the English language because it's seen as just sort of outside of our sphere really but actually a lot of those stories came through through the Middle East, they traveled, they were retold in the Middle East in the Thousand and One Nights, and then they would find their way into Europe, get retold in Italian. So there are some stories where you can actually trace a particular story uh, from, from India to, the, to, to Persia or Arabia, and then to Italy, and then you working your way up all the way to somewhere like Iceland or or Norway, um, and you can see the tracks of these stories, and they're the, and they're often the 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 movement of of stories is is exactly the same as the movement of diseases, um, you know, the, because they are viral, you know, they 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 can they can they catch on and 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 they adapt just like uh, just like any good virus does, they evolve and adapt and and find their way into whatever the new environment is. Um, so yeah, there's a story, uh, the Golden City from India, where um, a 
a gambler sets out to find this mythical city and he gets lost along the way. He gets shipwrecked. Pirates capture him. He um, he has all sorts of escapades, almost gets sucked down a whirlpool and then flies on the back of a talking crow to the mythical city that he's looking for. And in the Indian version, there's lots of Hindu uh, mythology in it. The Hindu gods come into it. Um, they don't, there's not fairies, but um, the, the various um, branches of, of, of Hindu deities and the princess is a re is reincarnated and there's various sort of ideas about reincarnation in it and the, the hero himself has to sort of go through this cycle that he has to get and then he has to repeat it, do the journey all over again and this idea of sort of going through different cycles of life. So it's very much bound up in Hindu mythology and, um, and, and Hindu faith but then when it came to the Middle East, you find the story told in a slightly different form where the um, where it becomes more about the power play between the a princess and 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 then a prince. And it's no longer just an ordinary, uh, ordinary uh, rustic guy on, 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 on the quest now, but a prince. Um, and he has to solve this riddle and he solves it by 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 finding the secret hideout where the princess um, goes with her lovers and then the princess ends up getting exposed and there's um, a lot of elements of, of Middle Eastern sort of mythology and culture that come into that and then the story emerges again much later in, in, a, in a tale by Hans Christian Andersen where it then becomes a story about a princess who has a hideout where she hangs out with trolls and so Nordic culture comes into it and mythology comes into it and um, and it plays on Andersen's own love of travel and his own sense of of, 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 the, of the hero's journey so um, so you see this story being retold in all these different places and, and in each version is very magical and very sort of fascinating in its own way. But there is a consistency between the stories and that's, you know, that's the virus of storytelling. It's a good virus. <laughs> Are there any lessons from that in what we see in sort of uh, falsehoods being spread today? And I don't know, you'll see something on, on Twitter or yeah. on Facebook, you know, a, a myth, you know, whether it's yeah. talking about viruses, you know, about vaccinations or something like that. Yeah. And that yeah. How, how is storytelling making is that is that the, the conduit that carries some of these things rather than facts and stats i mean one of the things i find really fascinating about storytelling is actually that storytelling isn't always good you know storytelling can be used in a very very bad way and um my last bit before this i was researching the epic stories of europe and one of the things i found so interesting and 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 troubling was how so many of the great sort of epic stories and myths have been used by politicians and by by military leaders because they're a great unifying force and especially if you can bind up some sense of identity with them so you have for example in the Balkans the story of the battle of Kosovo from the 14th century and that was used when Serbians were fighting against against the um, Ottoman empire again to try and the fighting for their independence and it and it and it yoked people together and 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 helped them to 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 to, to force their independence but it was also used in the 1990s by people like Slobodan Milosevic and Radovan Karadzic and some of those warlords who used those stories and I've met some of the the gooslers the people who perform these stories and they're very passionate about them and feel that it's a very strong expression of their national identity but it has been used to to drive people to war and 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 that can you know that can you know, if they're fighting for their independence, that's all very well, of course, but they're also fighting against somebody else. So it creates a sense of of unity for them, but also of unity against a common enemy. And 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 that can lead to, you know, absolutely you know, horrific acts and deeds. So there is that worry. 
you go back into you know throughout you know so many nations mythologies i mean greece is is a story that was created in so many ways by the stories that that were built out of the trojan war which were then repeated um by bards all around the 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 greek peninsula there were all those different city states but the idea that they all came together to fight against troy and again that's the idea coming together against a common enemy and then that was repeated at the pan-athenian games which then became a part of the propaganda that helped the athens the city of athens to claim authority over all of all of the peninsula so it became this sort of this sort of yoking myth and that has remained very much in Greek consciousness ever since and in all over Europe actually I mean it was really interesting researching about the the Greek war of independence and how people like Lord Byron and all these sort of romantic poets and people from all over Europe went out to Greece to fight for them because that story had had touched them so much they were so obsessed and fascinated by the story of, of Troy. I mean, Byron even had himself a suit of armor made according to the, the description of Achilles' armor in the Iliad, um, although he actually caught malaria and missed so he didn't manage to fight, but he, he, he might not. I don't think he'd have been as good a fighter as he was a poet. Probably so, not. <laughs> but this, it's this idea, yeah, that you, you have these stories that they become these, this, they can become this incredibly powerful force. And that's something that we find today in in, in the media and I think that social media has has sort of rediscovered the power of storytelling in absolutely the most shocking and, and terrible ways you know a lot of the time also in many good ways you know there are many beautiful stories that come out through these things but because of social media's ability to sort of make things viral to, to push things around and to spread to, you know it, it has that ability to spread it does what the trade the old trade routes did but it does it so fast um, and so before anything can be checked before facts can be checked because because one of the things about storytelling is that the fact doesn't matter. I mean, that's something very much in the fairy tales. It doesn't matter about the fact. You just go with the story. One of my favorite stories and one of my favorite fairy tales is, is about um, it's called The Flea. And it's about a king who grows a flea and um, basically gets bitten by a flea and he decides it's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen in his life so he decides to nurture it on his blood and then he brings in all sorts of different animals, sheep and goats and horses and lets, lets the flea feed on them all until it grows to the size of a sheep. And in the story, it said that that is the point at which the, the flea expired. Well, you have to just go with it and assume that a flea could, could grow to the size of a sheep. Um, and it's sort of part of the colour and sort of glory of the, of, of the story. And then the story is a wonderful sort of satire on court life. So all these different courtiers come in. Um, the, the skin of the flea is, is hung up in display and they all come in to try and decide what they think it is. And whoever can work it out it gets to marry the princess and one of them says it's a lynx another says it's a crocodile and eventually it's an ogre who, who who is able to identify it and the story has you were saying about you know stories having morals well here the moral really is don't assume that the ugly the big ugly guy from the forest doesn't know anything because he's the one who knows exactly what that is and he says yeah that's a flea all right whereas none of the courtiers have got a clue so the story is sort of um sort of satirizing how courtiers are basically idiots um and actually the the ones with real knowledge and wisdom are, are the ogres who've been pushed out into the refuges in the forest so there's there's always these these morals and these lessons that you can tease out of them but i often find that the most interesting stories are the ones where the moral isn't necessarily sort of shoved in your face but it's something you can just sort of interpret um, but obviously, because of the way that um, sort of pedagogical ideas around around storytelling, so I think around the sort of 18th century and onwards, a lot of stories were given these very fixed morals. Um, and then they got rather stuck to these morals. But there's this sort of because morals shift as well as stories do. So there's this sort of dance between morality and storytelling where they they move around each other. And sometimes stories get loosed from the morals that they've been that have been hung to them and, and changed. And, and, then, and then the morals change and are no longer applicable. And so they go off in different directions. Yeah. And do you think, 
you think today we're losing the art of storytelling with everything being so instant, so quick? You know, every you know every piece of information that our kids consume as like a TikTok video worth fifteen seconds and things like that. Are we going to lose storytelling? I mean, you talked about you know social media allowing those stories to spread really quickly, so maybe the power of reach is is there. But what about the art of it and the the craft of it? And are we losing that, or is it still there? I think the craft is very much there. I mean, if I think of some of the storytellers that I've that I've met over the last few years, there, and there's a lot of them. You know, the the, the skill and craft with which they are able to spin stories, I think, is absolutely electrifying. I think there are aspects which which are harder, which is why they have to work so hard on it, such as the memory. You know, we don't live in as oral a culture as as people did two or three hundred years ago. So so storytellers have to really work on being able to remember. I mean, that's probably the most important talent that a storyteller has to have is to have a really good memory. Um, and I think there is the problem of concentration and whether we we give ourselves the time to sit down and listen to a story. You know, a good story is going to take a little bit of time. You you can tell a good story in in just a few minutes, but why should why why do that when you could tell it in a bit longer and really sort of flesh it out and give it all the sort of beautiful details that, that can really make a story fly? Um, I I I mean I've been to a lot of a lot of sort of storytelling festivals and 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 seen storytellers in, in different places and 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 I've always I've generally found it just to be a fascinating experience and, the, and to, there to be a lot of people who are interested so I do think that there are lots of people there is an audience for storytelling and I think there are, is definitely the talent for stories to be told but yeah like you say we live in a modern world you know where I think it's very easy to get distracted from that um but I think that part of the charm that storytelling now has is that it offers an antidote to that that world and that i think people do enjoy you know sitting around a fireplace or sitting um sitting on haystacks at a, at a storytelling festival and you just have one storyteller there in the midst of you telling your story while you all sit around listening i think that's because you've got to switch off your phones you've got to just give yourself to the story i think that's what what makes it so compelling that it's so it feels so different from even from you know watching something on your telly or or listening to something on radio it feels it feels more immediate and that you've got you're connected to the storyteller there's something psychic that happens in that process and i think that i'd like to think that there's always going to be an, an audience for that but of course who knows maybe even sort of a a really sort of short renaissance of it in that you know we've all been stuck in our homes for the last two years um you know finding our entertainment and maybe that's through books and fairy tales which is fantastic but also through tv a lot and and the internet but actually getting back to the pub meeting your mates and what's been happening for you and that you know that person who just yeah. tells you it might be a mundane story about a car breaking down or something yeah. but if they tell it well then then that's more powerful than a text exactly. or anything absolutely and that's one of the joys of going to the pub i think is you know with your friends is that you're going to tell each other stories about what have you been up to and and you don't have to be a skilled storyteller with lots of craft you know you just just say what happened and I think you know it, it people people enjoy that don't they and they enjoy that sort of immediacy of of that eye contact and and that that sort of physical proximity and I think all of that goes into it's something that it's something that is rooted in us I mean researchers have, have looked into you know there's sort of scientific research about 
how some of the archetypes for these these stories and the and the experience of storytelling goes back you know thousands thousands of years and um, you know people have sort of researched some of those sort of archetypal stories like Cinderella and how you can find those the roots of them you know back um, there's a, a, a study of phylogenetic research where you're looking into the roots of language and how it goes back many many thousands of years so it's this idea that these people have been sort of sitting around listening to stories for a very very long time so so I think that is something that is innate in us, in us. and I think that the, the modern world although part of the modern world sort of pulls us away from that I think it also reminds us of why of the things that, that, that we treasure and I think that is is something that we that we do want to keep but um yeah how i think storytelling has has to evolve as well and the stories that are told have to evolve i mean there's um there's often furore is about different stories i mean recently in the press there's a furore about the story of snow white and the seven dwarfs for example which is being uh, there there's a new film being made by disney um and stories have to find a way to to be applicable to to a new generation so some stories get lost because they they just no longer work i mean there are some stories that i've read um, you know, that were very popular, say, in the 17th or 18th century, and, and they're not really told now. And you read them and you can see why. I mean, they're often quite, you know, just think this is really disturbing or this is, we just wouldn't want to tell our children that kind of story. Um, I think there's a, one of the things I found really fascinating actually was seeing, you know, there's a sort of tradition of, because a lot of our, our fairy tales are, are curated by the 19th century storytellers, a lot of them have these very docile, modest female heroines. Who, are, who sort of dutifully do the housework and, and don't really speak very much until, you know, their beauty is noticed by the prince or whoever, and then, you know, they get the happy ending and they get a sort of reward for good behaviour. But actually, when you go back into some of the earlier stories, and I think it's an interesting example of how history isn't always linear and progress isn't always linear, you find these fantastically vocal and dynamic heroines. I mean, the 17th century collection of Gian Battista Basile, for example, he has these wonderfully sort of noisy heroines who say, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be judged by a man, you know, I'm going to, I can choose my own value system or my own worth. You know, there's a story of a girl who, whose, whose lover is, 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 is mortally wounded and she, she goes into the forest and hacks down an ogre to take his, his fat, which will be the, the thing that she can use to cure her, her lover from his wounds. And the, the sort of wonderful stories like that. And there's a, a many stories that were told in the late 17th century by a group of female storytellers about very uh, sort of dynamic heroines who, um, who, 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 who push down the, the, the men who are harassing them or, uh, you know, knock them out of the way and, and 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 sort of achieve their goals by their own very much their own actions so um so so there's but those stories sort of got lost because then a different sort of morality took over and um a more sort of you know the a kind of patriarchal um code kind of pushed them down but i think some of those stories are sort of coming are resurfacing and and obviously people are telling new versions of fairy tales now as well sort of where they're sort of regendering them or trying to say change the sort of racial dynamics in the, in the stories and so on so so that they can be applicable to to the 21st century and that's what storytelling always has to do to become sort of modern and new and 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 and, and fresh and feel that it's that it's that it is both timeless and ancient and also very much sort of you know relevant real and, and happening right now yeah yeah exactly the fact that there's some magic and it doesn't mean it can rest on its laurels a, a story has to change with the society that it's being told in yeah i love that so brilliant well like fascinating to talk with you so nick tell tell us where you uh, where your book's available tell us what it's called uh, tell us where we can get hold of it yeah well the book is called the fairy tellers and it is out in all good bookshops right now uh, priced at £20 and a half back, but you can also get the Kindle version, Audible version, and eventually there will be, I hope, a paperback as well. 
So um, uh, yeah, please uh, seek it out. Brilliant, fantastic. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us and good luck with the book. Oh, that's all right. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me, John. <laughs>